Today, for Sunday, I present the first part of a work of Chesterton's that I have wanted to present to you for some time, my favorite work of his, The Catholic Church and Conversion. It's a short work of his, but too long to really do in one video, so I have part one this week. Next week, I'll probably have the second part of Dom Prosper Geringer's work on Lent, and following that, I will have the second part of this work of Chesterton's. There are millions of people right now preparing to enter the church at Easter around the world, and my own time in RCIA programs as a teacher made me realize that this book should be required reading for those who wish to teach the Catholic faith in those sorts of catechetical programs, as it gets into the mind of an intelligent convert who describes conversion and the forces that work against conversion better than anything I've ever read. So to that end, I present part one of G.K. Chesterton's often overlooked The Catholic Church and Conversion. A New Religion by G.K. Chesterton The Catholic faith used to be called the Old Religion, but at the present moment it has a recognized place among the new religions. This has nothing to do with its truth or falsehood, but it is a fact that has a great deal to do with the understanding of the modern world. It would be very undesirable that modern man should accept Catholicism merely as a novelty. novelty. Even those who denounce it generally denounce it as a novelty as an innovation and not merely a survival. They talk of the advanced party in the Church of England. They talk of the aggression of the Church of Rome. When they talk of an extremist, they are as likely to mean a ritualist as a socialist. Given any normal, respectable Protestant family, Anglican or Puritan, in England or America, we shall find that Catholicism is actually, for practical purposes, treated as a new religion. That is, a revolution. It is not a survival. It is not, in that sense, an antiquity. It does not necessarily owe anything to tradition. In places where tradition can do nothing for it, in places where all the tradition is against it, it is intruding on its own merits, not as a tradition, but a truth. The father of some such Anglican or American Puritan family will find, very often, that all his children are breaking away from his own more or less Christian compromise, regarded as normal in the 19th century, and going off in various directions after various faiths or fashions which he would call fads. One of his sons will become a socialist and hang up a portrait of Lenin. One of his daughters will become a spiritualist and play with a planchette. Another daughter will go over to Christian science, and it is quite likely that another son will go over to Rome. The point is, for the moment, that from the point of view of the father, and even in a sense of the family, all these things act the manner of, a new, of new religions, of great movements, of enthusiasms that carry people off their feet and leave older people bewildered or annoyed. Catholicism, indeed, even more than the others, is often spoken of as if it were actually one of the wild passions of youth. Optimistic aunts and uncles say that the youth will get over it, as if it were a childish love affair, or that unfortunate business with the barmaid. Darker and sterner aunts and uncles, perhaps at a rather earlier period, used to actually talk about it as an indecent indulgence, as if its literature were literally a sort of pornography. Newman remarks quite naturally, as if there were nothing odd about it at the time, that an undergraduate found with an ascetic manual or a book of monastic meditations was under a sort of cloud or taint, as having been caught with a bad book in his possession. He had been wallowing in the sensual pleasure of nones, or inflaming his lusts by contemplating an incorrect number of candles. It is perhaps no longer the custom to regard conversion as a form of dissipation, but it is still common to regard conversion as a form of revolt. 
And as regards the established convention of much of the modern world, it is a revolt. The worthy merchant of the middle class, the worthy farmer of the Middle West, when he sends his son to college, does now feel a faint alarm lest the boy should, come, should fall among thieves, in the sense of communists. But he has the same sort of fear lest he should fall among Catholics. Now he has no fear lest he should fall among Calvinists. He has no fear that his children will become 7th century surplusarians, however much he may dislike that doctrine. He is not even particularly troubled by the possibility of their adopting the extreme Soldafinian conceptions once common among some of the more extravagant Methodists. He is not likely to wait with terror at the telegram that will inform him that his son has become a fifth monarchy man any more than he has joined the Albigensians. He does not exactly lie awake at night wondering whether Tom at Oxford has become a Lutheran any more than a Lollard. All these religions he dimly recognizes as dead religions, or at any rate as old religions, and he is only frightened of new religions. He is only frightened of those fresh provocative, paradoxical new notions that fly to the young people's heads. But amongst these dangerous juvenile attractions, he does in practice class the freshness and novelty of Rome. Now, this is rather odd, because Rome is not so very new. Among these annoying new religions, one is rather an old religion, but it is the only old religion that is so new. When it was originally and really new, no doubt a Roman father often found himself in the same position as the Anglican or Puritan father. He too might find all his children going strange ways and deserting the household gods in the sacred temple of the capital. He too might find that one of those children had joined the Christians in their ecclesia, and possibly in their catacombs. But he would have found that, of his other children, one cared for nothing but the mysteries of Orpheus. Another was inclined to follow Mithras. Another was a Neopythagorean who had learned vegetarianism from the Hindus, and so on. Though the Roman father, unlike the Victorian father, might have had the pleasure of exercising the patria potestas and cutting off the heads of all the heretics, he could not cut off the stream of all the heresies. Only by this time most of the streams have run rather dry. It is now seldom necessary for the anxious parent to warn his children against the undesirable society of the bull of Mithras, or even to wean him from the exclusive contemplation of Orpheus. And though we have vegetarians always with us, they mostly know more about proteids than about Pythagoras. But that other youthful extravagance is still youthful. That other new religion is once again new. That one fleeting fashion has refused to fleet. And that ancient bit of modernity is still modern. It is still to the Protestant parent now exactly what it was to the pagan parent then. We might say simply that it is a nuisance. But anyhow, it is a novelty. And it is not simply what the father is used to, or even what the son is used to. It is common in as something fresh and disturbing. Whether as it came to the Greeks who were always seeking some new thing, or as it came to the shepherds who first heard the cry upon the hills of the good news that our language calls the gospel. We can explain the fact of the Greeks in the time of St. Paul regarding it as a new thing, because it was a new thing. But who will explain why it is still as new to the last of the converts as it was to the first of the shepherds? It is as if a man a hundred years old entered the Olympian Games among the young Greek athletes, which would surely have been the basis of a Greek legend. There is something almost as legendary about the religion that is two thousand years old now, appearing as a rival of the new religions. That is what has to be explained and cannot be explained away. Nothing can turn the legend into a myth. We have seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears this great modern quarrel between young Catholics and old Protestants, and it is the, the first step to recognize in any study of modern conversion. I am not going to talk about numbers and statistics, though I may say something about them later. The first fact to realize is a difference of a substance which falsifies all the difference of size, 
The great majority of Protestant bodies today, whether they are strong or weak, are not strengthened in this particular fashion, by the actual attraction of their new followers to their old doctrines. A young man will suddenly become a Catholic priest, or even a Catholic monk, because he has a spontaneous and even impatient personal enthusiasm for the doctrine of virginity as it appeared to St. Catherine or St. Clair. But how many men become Baptist ministers because they have a personal horror of the idea of an innocent infant coming unconsciously to Christ? How many honest Presbyterian ministers in Scotland really want to go back to John Knox, as a Catholic mystic might want to go back to John of the Cross? These men inherit positions which they feel they can hold with reasonable consistency and general agreement, but they do inherit them. For them, religion is tradition. We Catholics naturally do not sneer at tradition, but we say that in this case it is really tradition and nothing else. No, Not one man in a hundred of these people would ever have joined his present communion if he had been born outside it. Not one man in a thousand of them would have invented anything like his church formulas if they had not been laid down for him. None of them has any real reason for being in their own particular church, whatever good reason they may still have for being outside ours. In other words, the old creed of their communion has ceased to function as a fresh and stimulating idea. It is at best a motto, or war cry, and at the worst, a catchword, but it is not meeting contemporary ideas like contemporary idea. In their time and in their turn, we believe that those other contemporary ideas will also prove the mortality by having also become mottos and catchwords and traditions. A century or two hence, spiritualism may be a tradition, and socialism may be a tradition, and Christian science may be a tradition. But Catholicism will not be a tradition. It will still be a nuisance and a new and dangerous thing. These are the general considerations which govern any personal study of conversion to the Catholic faith. The Church has defended tradition in a time which stupidly denied and despised tradition. But that is simply because the Church is always the only thing defending whatever is at the moment stupidly despised. It is already beginning to appear as the only champion of reason in the 20th century, as it was the only champion of tradition in the 19th. We know that the higher mathematics is trying to deny that two and two make four, and the higher mysticism to imagine something that is beyond good and evil. Amid all these anti-rational philosophies, ours will remain the only rational philosophy. In the same spirit, the Church did indeed point out the value of tradition to a time which treated it as quite valueless. The 19th century neglect of tradition and mania for mere documents were altogether nonsensical. They amounted to saying that men always tell lies to children, but men never make mistakes in books. But though our sympathies are traditional because they are human, it is not that part of the thing which stamp it as divine. The mark of the faith is not tradition. It is conversion. It is the miracle by which men find truth in spite of tradition and often with the rending of all the roots of humanity. It is with the nature of this process that I propose to deal, and it is difficult to deal with it without introducing something of a personal element. My own is only a very trivial case, but naturally it is the case I know best, and I shall be compelled in the pages that follow to make many illustrations from it. I have therefore thought it well to put first this general note on the nature of the movement in my time, to show that I am well aware that it is very much larger and even a very much later movement than is implied in describing my own life or generation. I believe it will be more or more and more an issue for the rising generation and for the generation after that, as they discover the actual alternative in the awful actualities of our time. And Catholics, when they stand up together and sing the faith of our fathers, may realize almost with amusement that they might well be singing faith of our children. And in many cases, the return has been so recent as almost to deserve the description of a children's crusade. Chapter 2. 
the obvious blunders. I have noted that Catholicism really is in the 20th century what it was in the 2nd century. It is the new religion. Indeed, its very antiquity preserves an attitude of novelty. I have always thought it striking and even stirring that in the venerable invocation of the tantum ergo, which for us seems to come loaded with accumulated ages, there is still the language of innovation, of the antique document that must yield to a new rite. For us, the hymn is something of an antique document itself, but the rite is always new. But if a convert is to write of conversion, he must try to retrace his steps out of that shrine back into that ultimate wilderness where he was once really believed that this eternal youth was only the old religion. It is a thing exceedingly difficult to do and not often done well. And I, for one, have little hope of doing it even tolerably well. The difficulty was expressed to me by another convert who said, I cannot explain why I am a Catholic, because now that I am a Catholic, I cannot imagine myself as anything else. Nevertheless, it is right to make the imaginative effort. It is not bigotry to be certain we are right, but it is a bigotry to be unable to imagine how we might possibly have gone wrong. It is my duty to try to understand what H.G. Wells can possibly mean when he says that the medieval church did not care for education, but only for imposing dogmas. It is my duty to speculate, however darkly, on what can have been made an intelligent man like Arnold Benedict, stone blind to all the plainest facts about Spain. It is my duty to find, if I can, the thread of of connected thought in George Moore's various condemnation of Catholic Ireland. And it is equally my duty to labor till I understand the strange mental state of G.K. Chesterton when he really assumed that the Catholic Church was a sort of ruined abbey, almost as deserted as Stonehenge. I must say first that in my own case it was at worst a matter of slights rather than slanders. Many converts far more important than I have had to wrestle with a hundred devils of howling falsehood, with a swarm of lies and libels. I owe it to the liberal and universalist atmosphere of my family, of Stopford Brook, and the Unitarian preachers they followed, that I was always just, just sufficiently enlightened to be out of the reach of Maria Monk. Nevertheless, as this is but a private privilege for which I have to be thankful, it is necessary to say something of what I might be tempted to call the obvious slanders, but that better men than I have not always seen that the slander was obvious. I do not think that they exercise much influence on the generation that is younger than mine. The worst temptation of the most pagan youth is not so much to denounce monks for breaking their vow as to wonder at them for keeping it. But there is a state of transition that must be allowed for in which a vague Protestant prejudice would rather like to have it both ways. There is still a sort of woolly-minded Philistine who would be content to consider a friar a knave for his unchastity and a fool for his chastity. In other words, these dying calumnies are dying but not dead, and there are still enough people who may still be held back by such crude and clumsy obstacles that it is necessary to some extent to clear them away. After that, we can consider what may be called the real obstacles, the real difficulties we find, which as a fact are generally the very opposite of the difficulties we are told about. But let us consider the evidence of all these things being black before we go on to the inconvenient fact of their being white. The usual protest of the Protestant, that the Church of Rome is afraid of the Bible, did not, as I shall explain in a moment, have any great terrors for me at any time. This was by no merit of my own, but by the accident of my age and situation. For I grew up in a world in which the Protestants, who had just proved that Rome did not believe the Bible, were excitedly discovering that they did not believe the Bible themselves. Some of them even tried to combine the two condemnations and say that they were steps of progress. The next step in progress consisted in man kicking his father for having locked up a book of such beauty and value, a book which the son then proceeded to tear into a thousand pieces. 
I early discovered that the progress is worse than Protestantism so far as stupidity is concerned. But most of the free thinkers who were friends of mine happened to think sufficiently freely to see that the higher criticism was much more of an attack on Protestant Bible worship than on Roman authority. Anyhow, my family and friends were more concerned with the opening of the book of Darwin than the book of Daniel, and most of them regarded the Hebrew scriptures as if they were Hittite sculptures, but even then it would seem odd to worship the sculptures as God and then smash them as idols and still go on blaming somebody else for not having worshipped them enough. But here again it is hard for me to know how far my own experience is representative, or whether it would not be well to say more of these purely Protestant prejudices and doubts than I, from my own experience, am able to say. The church is a house with a hundred gates, and no two men enter at exactly the same angle. Mine was at least as much agnostic as Anglican, though I accepted for a time the borderland of Anglicanism, but only on the assumption that it could really be Anglo-Catholicism. There is a distinction of ultimate intention there, which in the vague of English atmosphere is often missed. It is not a difference of degree, but of different of definite aim. There are high churchmen, as much as low churchmen, who are concerned first and last to save the Church of England. Some of them think it can be saved by calling it Catholic, or making it Catholic, or believing that it is Catholic, but that is what they want to save. But I did not start out with the idea of saving the English Church, but of finding the Catholic Church. If the two are one, so much the better. But I had never conceived of Catholicism as a sort of showy attribute or attraction to be ta attacked onto my own national body, but as the inmost soul of the true body, wherever it might be. It might be said that Anglo-Catholicism was simply my own uncompleted conversion to Catholicism, but it was from a position originally much more detached and definite than I had been, than I had been converted, an atmosphere if not agnostic, at least pantheistic or Unitarian. To this I owe the fact that I find it very difficult to take some of the Protestant propositions even seriously. What is any man who has been in the real outer world, for instance, to make of the everlasting cry that Catholic traditions are condemned by the Bible? It indicates a jumble of topsy-turvy tests and tail-foremost arguments, of which I never could at any time see the sense. The ordinary sensible skeptic, or pagan, is standing in the street, in the supreme character of the man in the street, and he sees a procession go by of the priests of some strange cult, carrying their object of worship under a canopy, some of them wearing high head dresses and carrying symbolical staffs, others carrying scrolls and sacred records, others carrying sacred images and lighted candles before them, others sacred relics and caskets or cases, and so on. I can understand the spectator saying, this is all hocus-pocus. I can even understand him, in a moment of irritation, breaking up the procession, throwing down the images, tearing up the scrolls, dancing on the priests, and anything else that might express that general view. I can understand his saying, your crosiers are bosh, your candles are bosh, your statues and scrolls and relics, and all the rest of it are bosh. But in what conceivable frame of mind does he rush in to select one particular scroll of the scriptures of this one particular group, a scroll which had always belonged to them and been a part of their hocus-pocus, if it was hocus-pocus. Why in the world should the man in the street say that one particular scroll was not Bosch, but was the one and only truth by which all the other things were to be condemned? Why should it not be as superstitious to worship the scrolls as the statues of that one particular procession? Why should it not be as reasonable to preserve the statues as the scrolls by the tenets of that particular creed? To say to the priest, your sta statues and scrolls are condemned by our common sense is sensible. To say your statues are condemned by your scrolls, and we are going to worship one of your procession and wreck the rest, is not sensible from any standpoint, least of all that of the man in the street. 
Similarly, I could never take seriously the fear of the priest, as of some of something unnatural and unholy, a dangerous man in the home. Why should a man who wanted to be wicked encumber himself with special and elaborate promises to be good? There might be sometimes be a reason for a priest being a profligate. But what was the reason for a profligate being a priest? There are many more lucrative walks of life in which a person with such shining talents for vice and villainy might have made a brighter use of his gifts. Why should a man encumber himself with vows that nobody could expect him to take, and he did not himself expect to keep? Would any man make himself poor in order that he might become avarice, or take a vow of chastity frightfully difficult to keep in order to get into a little more trouble when he did not keep it? All that early and sensational picture of the sins of Rome always seemed to me silly, even when I was a boy or an unbeliever, and I cannot describe how I passed out of it because I was never in it. I remember asking some friends at Cambridge, people of the Puritan tradition, why in their world they were so afraid of papists, why a priest in somebody's house was a peril or an Irish servant at the beginning of a pestilence. I asked them why they could not simply disagree with papists and so-so, as they did with the theosophists and anarchists. They seemed at once pleased and shocked with my daring, as if I had undertaken to convert a burglar or tame a mad dog. Perhaps their alarm was really wiser than my bravado. Anyhow, I had not then the most shadowy notion that the burglar would convert me. That, however, I am inclined to think, is a subconscious intuition in the whole business. It must either mean that they suspect that our religion has something about it so wrong that the hint of it is bad for anybody, or else that it has something so right that the presence of it, of it would convert anybody. To do them justice, I think most of them darkly suspect the second and not the first. A shade more plausible than the notion that popish priests merely seek after evil was the notion that they are exceptionally ready to seek and have good by means of evil. In vulgar language, it is the notion that if they are not sensual, they are always sly. To dissipate this is a mere matter of experience, but before I had any experience, I had seen some objections to the thing even in theory. The theory attributed to the Jesuits was often very often almost identical with the practice adopted by nearly everybody I knew. Everybody in society practiced verbal economies, equivocations, and often direct fictions, without any sense of essential falsehood. Every gentleman was expected to say he would be delighted to dine with a bore. Every lady said that somebody else's baby was beautiful if she thought it as ugly as sin, for they did not think it a sin to avoid saying ugly things. This might be right or wrong, but it was absurd to pillory half a dozen popish priests for a crime committed daily by half a million Protestant laymen. The only difference was that the Jesuits had been worried enough about the matter to try to make rules and limitations, saving as much verbal veracity as possible, whereas the happy Protestants were not worried about it at all, but told lies from morning to night as merrily and innocently as the birds sing in the trees. The fact is, of course, that the modern world is full of utterly lawless casuistry, because the Jesuits were prevented from making a lawful casuistry. But every man is a casuist or a lunatic. It is true that this general truth was hidden from many by certain definite assertions. I can only call them, in simple language, Protestant lies about Catholic lying. The men who repeated them were not necessarily lying, because they were repeating. But the statements were of the same lucid and precise order as a statement that the Pope has three legs or that Rome is situated at the North Pole. There is no more doubt about their nature than that. One of them, for instance, is the positive statement once heard everywhere and still heard often. Roman Catholics are taught that anything is lawful if done for the good of the Church. This is not the fact, and there is an end of it. It refers to a definite statement of an institution whose statements are very definite, and it can be proved to be totally false. Here, as always, the critics cannot see that they are trying to have it both ways. They are always complaining that our creed is cut and dried, 
that we are told what to believe and must believe and nothing else, that it is all written down for us in bulls and confessions of faith. Insofar as this is true, it brings a matter like this to the point of legal and literal truth, which can be tested and so tested, it is a lie. But even hence I was saved at a very early stage by noticing a curious fact. I noticed that those who were most ready to blame priests for relying on rigid formulas seldom took the trouble to find out what the formulas were. I happened to pick up some of the amusing pamphlets of James Britton, as I might have picked up any other pamphlets of any other propaganda, but they set me on the track of that delightful branch of literature which he called Protestant fiction. I found some of that fiction on my own account, dipping into novels by Joseph Hawking and others. I am only concerned with them here to illustrate this particular and curious fact about the exactitude. I could not understand why these romancers never took the trouble to find out a few elementary facts about the thing they denounced. The facts might easily have helped the denunciation, were the fictions discredited. There were any number of real Catholic doctrines I should then have thought disgraceful to the Church. There are any number which I can still easily imagine being made to look disgraceful to the Church. But the enemies of the Church never found these real rocks of offense. They never looked for them. They never looked for anything. They seem to have simply made up out of their own heads a number of phrases, such as a scarlet woman of deficient intellect, might be supposed to launch on the world, and left it at that. Boundless freedom reigned. It was not treated as if it were a question of fact at all. A priest might say anything about the faith, because a Protestant might say anything about the priest. These novels were padded with the pronunciations like this one, for instance, which I happen to remember. Disobeying a priest is the one sin for which there is no absolution. We term it a reserved case. Now, obviously, a man writing like that is simply imagining what might exist. It has never occurred to him to go and ask if it does exist. He has heard the phrase, a reserved case, and considers it in a poetic reverie what he shall make it mean. He does not go and ask the nearest priest what it does mean. He does not look it up in an encyclopedia or in any ordinary work of reference. There is no doubt about the fact that it simply means a case reserved for ecclesiastical superiors and not to be settled finally by the priest. That may be a fact to be denounced, but anyhow, it is a fact. But the man much prefers to denounce his own fancy. Any manual would tell him that there is no sin for which there is no absolution, not disobeying the priest, not assassinating the pope. It would be easy to find out these facts and quite easy to base a Protestant invective upon them. It puzzled me very much, even at that early stage, to imagine why people bringing controversial charges against a powerful and prominent institution should thus neglect to test their own case, and should draw in this random way on their own imagination. It did not make any, me any more inclined to be a Catholic. In those days, the very idea of such a thing would have seemed crazy, but it did save me from swallowing all the solid and solemn assertion about what Jesuits said and did. I did not accept quite so completely as others the well-ascertained and widely accepted fact that Roman Catholics may do anything for the good of the Church, because I had already learned to smile at equally accepted truths like, disobeying a priest is the one sin for which there is no absolution. I never dreamed that the Roman religion was true, but I knew that its accusers, for some reason or other, were curiously inaccurate. It is strange to me to go back to these things now and to think that I ever took them even as seriously as that. But I was not very serious even then, and I certainly was not serious long. The last lingering shadow of the Jesuit, gliding between curtains and concealing himself in cupboards, faded from my young life about the time when I first caught a distant glimpse of the late Father Bernard Vaughn. He was the only Jesuit I ever knew in those days, and as you could generally hear him half a mile away, he seemed to be ill-selected for the duties of a curtain glider. It has always struck me as curious that this Jesuit raised a storm by refusing to be Jesuitical, in the journalist sense, I mean, 
by refusing to substitute smooth equivocation and verbal evasion for a brute fact, because he talked about killing Germans when Germans had to be killed. All our shifty and shamefaced morality was shocked at him, and none of those protesting Protestants took thought for a moment to realize that they were showing all the shuffling insincerity they attributed to the Jesuits, and the Jesuits showing all the plain candor that they claimed for the Protestant. I could give a great many other instances besides these I have given of the hidden Bible, the proliferate priest or the treacherous Jesuit. I could go steadily through the list of all these more old-fashioned charges against Rome and show how they affected me, or rather why they did not affect me. But my only purpose here is to point out, as a preliminary, that they did not affect me at all. I had all the difficulties that a heathen would have had in becoming a Catholic in the 4th century. I had very few of the difficulties that a Protestant had from the 17th to the 19th. And I owe this to men whose memories I shall always honor, to my father and his circle and the literary tradition of men like George MacDonald and the Universalists of the Victorian age. If I, if I was born on the wrong side of the Roman wall, at least I was not born on the wrong side of the no-popery quarrel. And if I did not inherit a fully civilized faith, neither did I inherit a barbarian feud. The people I was born amongst wished to be just, wished to, be just to Catholics if they did not always understand them. And I should be very thankless if I did not record of them that, like a very much more valuable convert, I can say I was born free. I will add one example to illustrate this point because it leads us on to larger matters. After a long time, I might almost say after a lifetime, I have at last begun to realize what the worthy libel, liberal or socialist of Balaam or Battersea really means when he says he is an internationalist, and that humanity should be preferred to the narrowness of nations. It dawned on me quite suddenly, after I had talked to such a man for many hours, that of course he had really been brought up to believe that God's enlightened Englishmen were the chosen race. Very likely his father or uncle actually thought they were the lost ten tribes. Anyhow, everything from his daily paper to his weekly sermon assumed that they were the salt of the earth, and especially that they were the salt of the sea. His people had never thought outside their British nationality. They lived in an empire on which the sun never set, or possibly never rose. Their church was emphatically the Church of England, even if it was a chapel. The religion was the Bible that went everywhere with the Union Jack, and when I realized that, I realized the whole story. That was why they were excited by the exceedingly dull theory of the internationalist. That was why the Brotherhood of Nations, which to me was a truism, to them was a trumpet. That was why it seemed such a thrilling paradox to say that we must love foreigners. It had in it the divine paradox that we must love enemies. That was why the internationalist was always planning deputations and visits to foreign capitals and heart-to-heart -heart talks and hands across the sea. It was the marvel of discovering that foreigners had hands, let alone hearts. There was the excitement of a sort of stifled cry of, Look, Frenchmen also have two legs. See, Germans have noses in the same places as we. Now, a Catholic, especially a born Catholic, can never understand that attitude, because from the first his whole religion is rooted in the unity of the race of Adam, the one and only chosen race. He is loyal to his own country. Indeed, he is generally ardently loyal to it, such loyal affections being in other ways very natural to his religious life, with its shrines and relics. But just as the relic follows up the, upon the religion, so the lo local loyalty follows on the universal brotherhood of all men. The Catholic says, of course we must love all men. But what do all men love? They love their lands, their lawful boundaries, the memories of their fathers. That is the justification of being national, that it is normal. But the Protestant par patriot never, really never thought of any patriotism except his own.
In that sense, Protestantism is patriotism. But unfortunately, it is only patriotism. It starts with it and never gets beyond it. We start with mankind and go beyond it to all the varied loves and traditions of mankind. There never was a more illuminating flash than that which lit up the last moment of one of the most glorious of English Protestants, one of the most Protestant and one of the most English, for that is the meaning of that phrase of Nurse Cavell, herself the noblest martyr of our modern religion of nationality. When the very shaft of the white sun of death shone deep into her mind, she cried aloud like one who had just discovered something. I see now that patriotism is not enough. There was this in common between the Catholics to whom I have come and the liberals among whom I was born. Neither of them would ever have imagined for a moment that patriotism was enough. But that insular idealism by which that great lady lived really had taught her unconsciously from childhood that patriotism was enough. Not seldom has the English lady appeared in history as a heroine, but generally as facing and defying strangers or savages, not especially as feeling them as fellows and equals. Those last words of the English martyrs in Belgium have often been quoted by the mere cosmopolitans, but cosmopolitans are the last people really to understand them. They are generally trying to prove not that patriotism is not enough, but that it is a great deal too much. The point is here that hundreds of the most heroic and high-minded people in Protestant countries have really assumed that it is enough to be a patriot. The most careless and cynical of Catholics know better, and so did the most vague and visionary of Universalists. Of all the Protestant difficulties which I here find it hard to imagine, this is perhaps the most common and in many ways commendable. The fact that the normal British subject begins by being so very British. By accident, I did not. The tradition I heard in my youth, the simple, the too simple, truths inherited from Priestley and Martineau, had in them something of that great grand generalization upon men as men which in the first of those great figures faced the howling jingoism of the French wars and defied even the, the legend of Trafalgar. It is to that tradition that I owe the fact, whether it to be an advantage or a disadvantage, that I cannot worthily analyze the very heroic virtues of a Plymouth brother, whose only center is Plymouth. For that rationalism, defective as it was, began long ago in the same central civilization in which the church herself began. If it has ended in the church, it would belong ago, it would, it began long ago in the republic, in a world where all these flags and frontiers were unknown, where all these state establishments and national sects were unthinkable. A vast cosmopolitan cosmos that had never heard the name of England or conceived the image of a kingdom separate and at war. In that vast pagan peace, which was the matrix of all these mysteries, which had forgotten the free cities and had not dreamed of the small nationalities, which knew only humanity, the humanum genus, and the name of Rome. The Catholic Church loves nations as she loves men, because they are her children. But they certainly are her children, in the same sense that they are secondary to her in time and process of production. This is, as it happens, a very good example of a fallacy that often confuses discussion about the convert. The same people who call the convert a pervert, and especially a traitor to patriotism, very often use the other catchword to the effect that he is forced to believe this or that. But it is not really a question of what a man is made to believe, but of what he must believe, what he cannot help believing. He cannot disbelieve in an elephant when he has seen one, and he cannot treat the, ch the, ch the church as a child when he has discovered that she is his mother. She is not only his mother, but his country's mother, and being much older and more aboriginal than his country. She is, she is such a mother, not in sentimental feeling, but in historical fact. He cannot think one thing when he knows the contrary thing. He cannot think that Christianity was invented by Penda of Mercia, who sent missionaries to the Hegan Augustine and the rude and barbarous Gregory. He cannot think that the church first rose in the middle of the British Empire and not of the Roman Empire. 
He cannot think that the Eng- that England existed with cricket and fox hunting and the Jacobean translation all complete when Rome was founded or when Christ was born. It is no good talking about his being free to believe these things. He's exactly as free to believe them as he is to believe that a horse has feathers or that the sun is pea green. He cannot believe them when once he fully realizes them. And among such things is the notion that the national claim upon a good patriot is in its nature more absolute, ancient, and authoritative than the claim of the whole religious culture which first mapped out its territories and anointed its kings. That religious culture does indeed encourage him to fight to the last for his country, as for his family. But that is because the religious culture is generous and imaginative and humane and knows that men must have intimate individual ties. But those secondary loyalties are secondary in time and logic to the law of universal morality, which justifies them. And if the patriot is such a fool as to force the issue against that universal tradition from which his own patriotism descends, if he presses his claim to priority over the primitive law of the whole earth, then he will have brought it upon himself if he answered with the pulver- pulverizing plainness of the book of Job. As God said to the man, where were you when the foundations of the world were laid? We might well say to the nation, where were you when the foundations of the church were laid? And the nation will not know in the last what to answer, if it should wish to answer, but it will be forced to put its hand upon its mouth, if only like the one who yawns and falls asleep. I have taken this particular case of patriotism because it concerns at last an emotion in which I profoundly believe, and happen to feel strongly. I have always done my best to defend it, though I have sometimes become suspect by sympathizing with other people's patriotism besides my own. But I cannot see how it can be defended except as part of the large morality. And the Catholic morality happens to be one of the very few large moralities now ready to defend it. But the Church defends it as one of the duties of men, and not as the whole duty of man, as it was in the Prussian theory of the state, and too often in the British theory of the empire. And for this the Catholic rests exactly as a universalist Unitarian rested upon the actual fact of a human unity anterior to all these healthy and natural human divisions. But it is absurd to treat the church as a novel conspiracy attacking the state, when the state was only recently a novel experiment arising within the church. It is absurd to forget that the church itself received the first loyalties of men who had not yet even conceived the notion of founding such a national and separate state, that the faith really was not only the faith of our fathers, but the faith of our fathers before they had even named our fatherland.